Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Bonnie Feierstein, who's Professor of Cell Biology and Neuroscience at Rutgers University. Her research interests include regulation of dendrite patterning, synaptogenesis, and neural circuitry with relevance to CNS injury and schizophrenia. Welcome, Bonnie. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here to talk about my work. Yeah, this is, uh, you've got some fascinating research. So, so I want to sort of rewind time back. You've been working in this area for a long time. Um, so I want to pick up one of your older papers from 2004. Cypin regulates dendrite patterning in hippocampal neurons by promoting microtubule assembly. You say in this paper, dendrite branching has an important role in normal brain function. Here you report that overexpression of cypin a protein that is expressed in developing processes in rat hippocampal neurons results in increased dendrite branching in primary culture. So, so we want to uh, dig a little deeper into the details of this, Barney, but before we, we go there, I want to set some definitions um, in, in general terms. So dendrite branching, it sounds like stuff that grows in the brain. So, so <laughs> <laughs> so do you have so how do you how do you think about dendrite branching? Sure. So if you look at different neurons in different regions of the brain, they have different shapes. And for non-neuroscientists, neurons are what we call polarized. So there's one side per se, well, we'll leave it loosely, that looks like branches on a tree, which are the input portion of the, the neurons. And the there's another process that's called the axon that's longer and not as branchy, and that's the portion of the neuron that actually sends information out. If you look at the brain and you look at neurons in different regions or even within the same region, these 
dendrites actually have different shapes. There are different numbers of them. They branch differently. Um, they actually, for some neurons, even have little mushrooms that stick out called dendritic spines. And the way these dendrites are patterned, the way the these mushroom spines are on these dendrites, really tells the neuron how to function because it really regulates how the information comes into a neuron and how it's processed. So you can also think of dendrites as kind of cables. So you have input and it's gonna perpetuate that input to what we call the cell body of the neuron, which integrates all of the signals. So I always use this example. If you have really long dendrites, like on a tree and you have input, it's gonna take a lot longer for signals to get to the cell body. And if you have really short dendrites, it's gonna take a lot less time to get to the cell body. And the neurons function is really gonna be related to how the input is patterned on the dendrites, how it receives the information. Hmm. Yes, yeah, really interesting. So dendrites are like cables, as you say. And so the patterns in this sort of connectivity structure has implications for information transfer, right? That's right, yes. And so, um, so, so we, we will talk uh, in detail about siphon, but before we get there, um, just, just to set the context, so I don't know anything about this. <laughs> but, uh, so, um, so we've got a lot of neurons. We got, I think, 10 to the power 10 neurons in a, in a human brain. And they communicate by, by sending signals. So there is a presynaptic neuron and there's a postsynaptic neuron. So you have to somehow send information, just like the internet, right? So one computer has to send some information to the other computer, <laughs> and the other computer has to react to it. And so that whole circuitry is, is a, is a com very complex phenomenon, right? We don't quite understand um, really well, but we have some inklings how, how it was. So it's even more complicated than that because we're focusing on neurons, right? So if you look at the brain, everybody focuses on the neurons, but it turns out that there are other cells in the brain uh, that not only signal, but protect neurons from death. There are, so astrocytes are a type of glial cell, a non-neuronal cell. They signal to even, you know, to neurons even in the synapse. Uh, oligodendrocytes are glial cells that actually wrap myelin around the axon so that that regulates how quickly or how slowly signals come out of the neuron. But we were focusing on the dendrites just because you can imagine you only have so big a lab and so many people. Yeah. The dendrites, I think of them kind of like, uh, you know, to, to get the shape of the neuron, you have to have the backbone. So you want your neuron to receive information from a certain other set of neurons, and you need to be able to reach those neurons or for them to reach you. And often when you have, let's say, an animal in a novel environment, if you take a rat and you put the rat instead of in a regular cage, you put them in a cage with different toys and wheels, they mm. grow more dendrites. So what does that mean? That their neurons are actually growing these extra dendrites and they're receiving more information. And mm. it's strengthening that circuitry. So that's why they always say, you know, again, I'm reaching because I'm more of a basic scientist, but they tell you with your children, make sure they have enriched environments so that their brains can grow. And they're talking about the brain as a whole, but, and strengthening synapses, but also maybe your dendrites grow and maybe mm. you have more information. So again, you know, we focus on the neurons, but there are other things that are going on such as astrocyte signaling and um, even other types of cells. Yeah, so I want to take a bit of a detour here. 
um, <coughs> body. So uh, I have heard a lot of lot of different things about how um, you know uh, kids listening to music, <coughs> excuse me, uh, could be good for the development. Is it is it just input that's important, or is it input uh, processing and output? <laughs> That's important. Yeah, I think it's a subtle distinction there, right? Exactly. So on a, on a broader level, on a human level, we don't really study the input. But if you look at a molecular level, it's kind of the same question. So if you have a neuron that receives input from other neurons and the other neurons aren't giving the correct input, you have a problem. If that neuron can't give output to the next neuron, you also have a problem. So it's very important to, to realize that when dendrites change, so do the axons that are coming in, the synapses change. So you have sometimes postsynaptic effects, but they're not isolated. They're actually gonna affect presynaptic components. So input and output are equally important because again, like you mentioned before, one neuron is not in isolation, it's in a circuit. And if you change one neuron or maybe more than one, but some neurons, there are essential neurons in a circuit and some neurons that might be redundant, but if you hit those really essential neurons, you can completely change the way that circuit processes information. And then you can extract, maybe with more neurocognitive scientists, um, that what's happening at the molecular level really affects cognitive processing. And it's even been shown in, in mice that if you change these molecular, make these molecular changes to either the post or presynaptic component, these mice don't learn as well. So we know that there are correlates to this processing at a higher level. So what's a little redundancy in the brain body? So, you know, all these, do all these things have to work perfectly for the brain to function? Or, you know, just like an aircraft, if, you know, if something doesn't work, you know, we have alternative backup systems that sort of take over. Do we have things like that in the brain? Uh, or is it sort of one or the other? <laughs> No, so it's believed that there is some redundancy. With our collaborators, we've studied things like what if you have a neural circuit and you kill off certain neurons? And this, we've my collaborators done um, both computationally and in culture. So if you, for example, suck up the cell body of certain neurons in a circuit, some of them will destroy the circuit and some of them will just change the circuit a little bit. So there are neurons that are considered major hubs for a circuit and some that I'm using the word redundant, they might not completely be redundant, but maybe aren't as important. And often, depending on how strong that neuron participates in the neural, you know, neural circuit, that might determine how important it is. We were also talking about redundancy or what if you get rid of some neurons? So, you know, that's another interesting point. For example, if you have um, some kind of injury and you've killed out uh, some neurons, you might have ingrowth from other neurons to take over the function. Mm. Sometimes that function is normal, but oftentimes it's aberrant. So think about phantom limb pain. Yeah. This is in a different, right, but spinal cord injury, you now have neurons that are in a circuit that are now improperly wired. So there's there's really a lot going on. We have neuroscientists who are doing computational studies. Some of us are trying to do it with cellular studies. It's a little more difficult to do it in the whole brain, but people are looking at that. And people have looked at connectivity maps in, let's say, patients with schizophrenia. People have had damage and neurodegeneration, but it's a lot more difficult to say in the human brain, is this neuron redundant? Is this neuron not redundant? Because that, you know, that resolution is really hard to get. 
Yeah, so so there are two things there. I think, um, I mean, I don't really understand it, but there's sort of a tactical redundancy, redundancy question, which is if, if you lose function, can somebody step in? Then there's more of a strategic redundancy question, which is if you lose function, can other things learn yes. to replicate that function? It's two, two different two different things, right? Right. So, so it's real. It, it's actually interesting. So, you know, you were talking about redundancy and let's say neurons stepping in. So, of interest is traumatic brain injury. So, I have collaborators in traumatic brain injury. New Jersey is a really strong state for TBI research. So, there are a lot of researchers there. Yeah. Um, and if you have an animal that has a severe injury, that animal could eventually recover which is quite striking, right? So if you have mm. a mouse and it has this severe traumatic brain injury and you, now granted, some of the neurobehavioral tests that we use are a lot simpler than for a human, but it's still pretty amazing. If you take a mouse and what people normally use is something like a Morris water maze, where mice don't like to swim, you have a, a, a tub of water that is cloudy, so they can't see where you put a platform. So there's a platform underneath. And they swim around for a while, and then they realize that the platform is somewhere in one of the four quadrants. And they learn that pretty quickly. If you look at a damaged uh, mouse, and I haven't done these studies per se, but if you look at a mouse that has either a neurodegenerative condition, a traumatic brain injury, you know, some other stroke, some other type of injury, and the mouse is now swimming around, it takes them a lot longer to find that platform and a lot longer when you remove the platform for them to figure out what's going on. So if you think about a human that has a severe traumatic brain injury, often there are cognitive deficits that really never recover. And, and people who really have severe traumatic brain injuries have multiple, multiple problems. Mm -hmm. If you look at this mouse that has a severe injury, eventually they do recover. And that really begs the question, why is that? Is it because these mice have a simpler circuit where again, things can grow in and not have an aberrant uh, function, you know, not take on an aberrant function? Is it just that they have some kind of resiliency because their circuits are less, I would say complex? You know, what's the difference between, I mean, we know there's a huge difference, but what's the difference between the human brain yeah. and the rodent brain? And why can humans not really regain some of their functions much later on, like like mice do. So th that to me is a huge question and it's it's not a simple question, right? Why, how do you get the brain to remodel in a proper way that's functional? Yeah, that's a really interesting, interesting thing. So there, there, a lot of things are going through my mind, um, Barney, without knowing anything about it. Um, one is, when the brain gets very complex, when you get an injury, remedying that injury is also a very, very complex process, as you say. If, so if you imagine the mice brain, the mouse brain is not that complex, maybe it's um, easier to replicate or easier to remedy. It's a bit like taking a quantum computer and smashing it say yeah. <laughs> build it back up again as opposed to you know a regular computer perhaps um so that has a lot of implications uh don't they so you know going back to it is so we'll, we'll talk about your other papers but so animal studies then don't quite translate in the brain regime 
animal studies don't quite translate into humans, right? I mean, because we have an exponentially increasing complexity in the brain. Yes. So that's one of the problems. So there have been many trials on, let's say, different growth factors after an injury or after neurodegenerative disorder. So one of the best known ones is called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And in fact, uh, th there are some abnormalities in this system called the BDNF for brain-derived neurotrophic factor system that are found in Alzheimer's disease. And going to clinical trial with BDNF and trying to give patients BDNF doesn't seem to work. But in mice, it often works. And the question is why? Um, and it's really difficult, right? Because you you have to be able to study simple systems before you move to a more complicated system, but you do lose a lot of information. Yeah. And that's something that we struggle with. I think we're hoping that a lot of the new ways that people look at computational neuroscience and neurocircuits can kind of bridge that. But I still don't know, you know, will, will that fill our gap? I mean, that has yet to be seen. When I was going to grad school, I went to graduate school in the late 80s, early 90s. Computational neuroscience was something brand new, and it was much simpler than it is now. So it's rapidly, rapidly evolving. And in fact, when I was talking to a collaborator, you know, as a as a molecular biological neuroscientist, I always thought that when you build a neural circuit, you're basically putting in neurons and you're talking about things like capacitance and you know changes <laughs> to the to myelination. And it turns out computational neuroscience or neural circuits, the way they model them, is completely different than the way I think of it. So I was really surprised. Maybe maybe I was a little naive or maybe <laughs> ignorant of the field, but yeah. you know, it, it, it's so different than what I study. And it would be really interesting to know if that would be enough to, to bridge that gap from simple to much more complex before we start you know, you, you can't you can study humans, but you can't really do drug design on humans. I mean, I I would not want to be a subject where you're changing drugs and trying to figure out how they're going to help. You really want a, a drug that's worked on a lower organism first before you start moving into clinical trials. Yeah, I often think about this, Bonnie, as you know, as a God has a sense of humor. Um, so it gives you some, you know, some areas to play in, but uh, she doesn't really give you the information. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, so we'll be spinning, I think we'll be spinning our wheels for a long time uh, before we can understand the brain, uh, because it seems very, very nonlinear, very complex. Uh, all the things that we do in artificial intelligence has really no, no relationship, I would say, to the brain. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting thing to think about. So I want to go to another paper. So 2008, Structural characterization of zinc binding domain in cytosolic PST95 interactors, so cytin, dendrite morphology, you say, regulates how a postsynaptic neuron receives information from presynaptic neurons. And the specific patterning of dendrite branches is promoted by extrinsic and intrinsic factors that trigger the activation of functional signaling pathways. So so, so what's the uh, what's the relevance of sync binding here? Um, so, so how does it work? So, sipin is a very, very complicated molecule, and sipin itself is an enzyme. It is in what we call the purine metabolic pathway. It breaks down guanine to xanthine, and xanthine gets converted to uric acid. So. In the body outside of the brain, if you have too much uric acid, your serum concentrations of uric acid are too high, you get gout. In the brain, 
it's really interesting because we found and, and others have found that if if uric acid is too low, it's actually a problem. So purine metabolism, for whatever reason, the brain is really, really, it, there's an importance of purine metabolism, including guanine metabolism, including sipin. So what is the role of zinc? Sipin has, sipin actually binds zinc. And if you get rid of this zinc binding to the sipin, this enzyme, you can no longer convert guanine to xanthine. So you inhibit the production of xanthine, which then inhibits the production of uric acid. So zinc is very, very important, at least in the context of sipin, for its function. We originally had found that if you get rid of zinc binding from sipin, you decrease the dendrite branching capability of sipin. And, you know, I, I want to kind of go back to the mouse models and the, and the cell culture models, because I don't want to leave the impression that they don't help us with the human condition. That's absolutely not true. Um, sipin is an enzyme that's found in humans. There is only one report of a human being who had a sipin deficiency, a guanidiaminous deficiency. It was an infant, and that infant died two weeks after birth, and it was due to respiratory failure. So they had a complete lack of sipin. So we can learn a lot from the mouse models. Our, so what we're saying is that zinc is really important for sipin's capability for, mm. for increasing dendrite branching. And actually, zinc is very, very important even for learning and memory. So there are these... Um, they're called mossy fibers, they're in the hippocampus, and they help to import zinc into the cell. And we still haven't quite linked sipin to this import of zinc, but we do know that you need zinc to bind sipin so that you can promote dendrites, mm -hmm. dendritic growth. This is so fascinating, Barney. So I had a issue with uh, gout about 20 years ago. <laughs> it's been controlled since then. Um, so uric acid, as you know, is a powerful antioxidant. And um, I think there's some correlation or negative correlation, I should say, people carrying high uric acid and CNS diseases, yes. um, like Parkinson's and things like that. And so this sort of goes into that idea, right? Uric acid is a very useful construct. So, so it's, it, it's important for two reasons. So first, yes, it's an antioxidant. We know that it's an antioxidant and it is, as you said, kind of inversely correlated with CNS diseases. One of the main diseases besides Parkinson's disease that people focused on is multiple sclerosis. They've looked at identical twins. One had MS, one did not. The one with MS had the lower uric acid levels. This is serum uric acid levels. Mm. So um, I guess the, the question is, besides being an antioxidant, what else does uric acid do? And we I didn't send you the paper, but we previously found that. So if you give uric acid at the time of injury in a culture of neurons, you injure them chemically, you, yeah. can, bind, you can bind free radicals. That's an antioxidant. But what happens if you give it after an injury, which is much more clinically relevant? You have to have astrocytes present with those neurons for uric acid to act and work. So mm. uric acid doesn't just act as an antioxidant. It actually regulates these transporters on astrocytes called glutamate transporters. And what happens in an injury or neurodegeneration is that neurons and astrocytes pump out way too much glutamate. And normally a little bit of glutamate is fine. A little more glutamate helps you learn, but too much glutamate kills your neurons. Mm. So uric acid- problem, yeah. <laughs> so, so uric acid does multiple things. Of course, you know, it can't just be that simple because <laughs> then we wouldn't have enough to study. So uric acid, we believe, is really important not only for antioxidant activity, but for keeping glutamate levels 
at baseline or at least you know high enough for you to learn but not so bad that you kill your neurons and that's why we think uric acid is necessary yes yeah, so so interesting body so i i i thought, uh, i was told that um the the body actually sort of reclaims the uric acid you know if you don't if you don't actually take it out like peeing right yeah, body wants to reclaim the uric acid as fast as possible because the body believes it's a very useful <laughs> thing to have yep. and you know that goes into this uh, high you know high uh, uric acid serum levels and that gets into um calcium you know the the crystallization of uric acid in the, exactly. the joints and all of that it's a gout um but it's sort of a design failure in some ways of a human body right <laughs> well, well, everything has to be in balance if you yeah. think about it, right? So, for example, I mean, this isn't neuroscience, but I have an autoimmune condition, right? I have celiac disease. So it's it's not too bad because if I stay away from gluten, okay, I'm fine. But you would say, but that doesn't make sense. Why would your body react to gluten? It's so, you know, you're having this huge autoimmune issue. But at the same time, if I'm infected by a virus or a bacterium, right, I want to be able to mount this, mount this big, <laughs> you know, immune response. So everything has to be in balance. And it's the same thing with the brain. It's the same thing with uric acid levels. You don't want to be too low because if you're too low, it could affect your brain, but you don't want to be too high because if, if you're too high, you get crystals. So I, you know, everything, we use the word homeostasis a lot. Everything has to be in homeostasis. And there's a positive to being knocked out of homeostasis depending on what the situation is, right? So you want to have more glutamate, let's say, for learning and memory, but not so much. You want to have more uric acid because you want to protect your brain, let's say, after a traumatic injury, but not so much that you end up with gout. And so everything is, like they always say, in moderation, right? <laughs> yeah. Not too hot, not too cold. Um, exactly. It's the right prescription, I think. So, so I want to go into your 2011 paper, the role of PST95 and Cypin in morphological changes in dendrites following sublethal and MDA exposure. Um, so you see here focal swelling and varicosity formation in dendrites and loss of dendritic spines are the earliest indications of glutamate-induced excitotoxicity. Although it's known that microtubule dynamics play a role in varicosity formation, very little is known about the proteins that directly impact microtubules during focal swelling and dendrite spine, dendritic spine loss. So, um, so dendritic spine loss is one thing we need to define. Okay. And microtubule dynamics is another thing. So let's get some definitions so that we can we can talk more about it. I, I have no clue about any of this. Okay. <laughs> so in the cortex and the hippocampus, so the cortex, everybody is hippocampus, yeah. um, all of the excitatory neurotransmission, meaning glutamate transmission, is the presynaptic component comes in on these little mushrooms that I told you about that stick off of dendrites, and those are called dendritic spines. They have a lot of glutamate receptors, and these glutamate receptors are of different subtypes. One of them is called the NMDA receptor subtype. NMDA is N-methyl diaspartic acid, and that is an activator of that particular type of glutamate receptor. So that's why it's named after that. Microtubule dynamics. So what happens is in, in dendrites, 
you know, I always think of dendrites kind of like my fingers. So I have the bones in my fingers. The microtubules are the tracks that keep your dendrites as dendrites rather than, you know, kind mm -hmm. of like spaghetti. And so these microtubules grow and they also shrink. And those are called microtubule dynamics. In the dendritic spine that I told you, the little mushroom, there are little microtubules that are in its neck and in the head that's mostly not microtubules. It's something that I think of yin and yang called actin. So actin is in the, in the dendritic head. Mm -hmm. So what happens during an injury, what we did in that paper is we induced an injury. And normally for a stroke, a traumatic brain injury, a spinal cord injury, you have two types of injuries. You have the primary injury, stroke is a little different, but the primary injury for a traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury are the mechanical injuries. You hit your head, you have inertial torque, that you have your brain moving in your head, that's a mechanical injury. Your axon stretch, your dendrite stretch, mostly your axons though, then there's a second phase, which actually is very detrimental. That starts from, I would say, sub hours all the way through days and months and sometimes years, where your neurons are releasing too much glutamate. And that is glutamate- that the concussion, post-concussion effects? That's part of post-concussion effects. That's right, it can go on for a while. That glutamate binds to the NMDA receptor. So what we did in culture is we dumped on a whole bunch of glutamate or NMDA in that particular, uh, situation to mimic. And what we found was that the dendrites swell just like they do in the brain after an injury. And we figured out that these two proteins were important. One was positive and one was negative. So sipin, our favorite protein, is positive. If you, if you put in more sipin into the neuron, hmm. you actually don't have as many of those swellings and they're bigger. And now because these swellings kind of save broken microtubules because they're big, when you stop um, activating the, the NMD receptor, stop damaging the neurons, these swellings now go back and you have a normal dendrite and the microtubules can kind of repair themselves and dendrite spines can come back out because they've come in when you damage the neuron. In contrast, PSD95, so I should say that SIPIN stands for cytosolic PSD95 interactor, so it's yin and yang, PSD95, which if you look up at PumBed, everybody loves to study it because it's so important at the dendritic spine. This protein, if you have too much of it, is actually bad. And we found out later, the reason it's bad is it stops microtubules from growing. Mm. So not only does it make a lot of small beading on the, on the dendrites, which now kind of breaks up the microtubules into small pieces and so it can't they can't recover, but also PSD95 itself stops the microtubules from growing. So you can't repair those microtubules. And now the dendritic spines, if your dendrite isn't repaired, you can't get your spines to come back out and then have connections from the presynaptic neuron. So from an evolutionary perspective, Bernie, is there a situation where it's beneficial? that PSD95 could be beneficial for the brain? So there is a situation. So when you learn, for example, there's a lot of PSD95 that's recruited to these spines. So it's not that PSD95 is all bad. It's just if you have too much of it during or after an injury, you can't remodel, uh, at least remodel the dendrites. But you do need PSD95 to remodel the spine. So what we think is, let's say we, were, we tried this um, in our model. What we wanted to do is if you overexpress, let's say, sipin early on, or you give a compound that activates it, you can protect the dendrites, but you need to keep PSD95 low. But later, after you've made the dendrites remodel, now you come back and you need more PSD95 so those spines can come out. So it's not a simple, there's too much, too little. Again, we talked about homeostasis and moderation. Yeah, yeah. 
there are different phases at which you would probably target different proteins and the roles that they play. Yeah. Again, sort of an optimization problem. Um, and so I want to finish up with your 2018 paper, Cypen, a novel target for traumatic brain injury. So this, you said despite this uh, pervasive role of neuronal function, the ability of cyprin activity to affect recovery from acute brain injury is unknown. A key barrier in identifying the role of cyprin in neurological recovery is the absence of pharmacological tools to manipulate cyprin activity in vivo. Here we use a small molecule screen to identify two activators and one inhibitor of cyprin's activity. I have a very uh, vague memory of this body. So uh, I was at Pfizer in the late 90s. And we were pursuing, and I wasn't a scientist, I was on the business side, but uh, we were pursuing a traumatic brain injury compound that, um, that sounds surprisingly similar to P95, <laughs> if, I, if I remember, uh, 30 years ago. Um, so, I mean, you've been working in this area for a long time. So, um, traumatic brain injury, one of the issues that you, so if you have a you know, motorbike accident or something, uh, by the time you get to the hospital, if the 30 minutes, 45 minutes elapse, you have a much lower chance of recovering from it. The idea of this compound, if I remember correctly, was if you can administer it on site um, and, you know, sort of, sort of keep the brain um not go back you know the yeah. next 30 minutes was idea um is that is that sound anything like what what you are doing here so we would actually like to figure out what comments we could give even later on right so on, what yeah. we did is we know that if you have a neurons you overexpress siphon that they're a little more resistant or not a little they're more resistant to this toxicity from the glutamate receptor what we did is we asked the question, what if we, what is this through uric acid production? And we didn't directly show that, but what we did is we screened for compounds that would increase cypens activity, giving you more xanthine that can be converted to uric acid and compounds that decreased it. And there are two reasons we thought the activators would work, which they did, and I'll go into in a minute, but there could have been a possibility that the inhibitors would work just because we didn't know if maybe you generate too much uric acid during um, you know, some kind of injury, it would be detrimental. So we did this screen. We did a color metric screen for activity. We found actually more than two, but we chose the best two, activators and inhibitor. And the idea is that you've got neurons that are that pretty much die after injury. There's nothing you can do about it. But if you have neurons, I call them, I always tell my students, it's like they're hanging on by their fingernails, right? So they're they're not dead yet, and you can save them. And so the hope was that if we administered a compound after an injury, that now you could protect the neurons. So we did two things. One is we took neurons in a dish, we injured them, and we gave them compounds. And the compounds that activated siphon not only kept them alive, but it actually kept their electrophysiological function where it was before. So if you mm -hmm. damage a neuron, it doesn't fire as much. And even the yeah. um, even if it does fire, what we call the amplitude, so how strong it fires, is a lot less. It's almost mm. actually in our cultures, it was really, really low. If you give the, the neurons or you treat the neurons with these activators, it goes back to baseline. Mm. And so that, then we asked the question with our collaborator, what if we gave these compounds in a model of traumatic brain injury? And so the compounds were given one hour after an injury, 
And five days, they were, the animals were trained for four days on a behavioral task. And then on the fifth day, we tested them. So for example, if you looked at the behavioral task in animals that were uninjured, the animals performed this task properly 70% of the time. If you injured the animal, the animal now only did it properly 35% of the time. So 50% decrease. Yeah. If you gave the inhibitor on its own, it actually brought the animals down to the 35% where they were injured. So it's not good to inhibit sipin even in a, a uninjured animal and person. But if you gave the activator on its own, it did nothing. So the animal is fine. But if you gave it after an injury, one hour after an injury, the mm. animal was back at 70%, which everything was done blinded. We were ecstatic because we, we I mean, it worked very, very well. So yeah. what this says, at least in an animal model, is that you can wait an hour after injury. And the hope is that if you extend that to humans, would that extend to one hour? Would that extend to three hours? Would that extend to three days, three weeks? We don't know. Or it really minutes. Or three exactly. minutes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We, we don't know. So right now, those compounds are what we call pharmacores. So they're not actual drugs yet, but we are working with people to make them more druggable. And we want to find other ways to to administer them. Do we want to inject them? Do we want to, you know, make it in an oral form? Do we want to, for example, the nasal epithelium is a very good way to get into the brain. We also want to make sure that these compounds are excluded from other tissues because, as we discussed, if you activate sipin, maybe you would have short-term gout, which compared to traumatic brain injury is not life-threatening, but you don't want to have complications. So that's some. those are some of the things my lab is currently working on with medicinal mm -hmm. chemists. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, this connection with uric acid and, and, and brain injuries is really interesting. So, I mean, um, you know, we have the American football going on and there are a lot of concussions on the field. And we, all, we already know there are a lot of complications post-concussions. So if there's some sort of a drug that you can devise that if you, somebody has a concussion, you basically give that drug uh, to sort of uh, mute, you know, the long-term complications. From I mean, we know concussions have have long-term complications. We just don't. Yes. We just ignore them right now. Yeah, <laughs> and and yeah. they're serious, right? You a lot of uh, professional football players have CTE, right? And so this is a problem. I mean, it would even be nice to have a prophylactic that doesn't. I mean, this is a dream, right? Because Drugs do have side effects, but if there was a way to find a prophylactic compound or drug or treatment that athletes could take prior to playing football, if we can't find one that will work after, right, and that's protective, but doesn't do anything to the uninjured brain, because you don't want something that's going to do something to the uninjured brain, but something that will protect the injured brain. You know, if it's a pill, they would probably take it. And like you said, they have multiple hits, so multiple concussions. And one of the questions we're asking with our collaborators is, What's the difference between one concussion, multiple yeah. concussions, a severe TBI, you know, is is one. So I don't know if you know about this idea that strokes, depending on how strong the strokes are, if you have a minor stroke prior to a large stroke, it's actually protective. But if you have a large stroke followed by another stroke, it's it's not a good thing. You mm. know, how does that relate to traumatic brain injury? When these athletes get injured, what is the breaking point? Is it three concussions? Is it one concussion? Is it 25 concussions? It, so it, these are still outstanding questions. And they're yeah. very difficult to study, like you said, because some of these long-term effects are either ignored or they happen so much later in life, 
which, you know, is very, very sad because the athletes don't know that they're actually transitioning to this disorder at this disease state. So are there even better biomarkers? We're working with an, our group at, at UPenn, so David Meany's lab to try to figure out, and David Isidore's lab to figure out biomarkers that might help with the progression of the mm -hmm. disease. So it's not just about coming up with therapeutics. It would also be good to come up with diagnostics and biomarkers yeah. to figure out where in the disorder or disease these people you know, are and what the outcomes will be. Yeah, so there's two questions. One is sort of the multiple trauma question. So multiple trauma question could be answered through animal models. I mean, not answered, but could be tested through animal models. But the long-term effects are more complicated, right? So I don't know, yeah. what's, what's the lifespan of a mouse typically? So a mouse is, I believe it's about two years, but here's, yeah. here's the thing. A lot of people who are studying larger animals are studying the pig. So we don't study the pig, but I don't know if you okay. know this. And the problem with mouse models is that they're often invasive. With the pig, they can they can do blast injury. They can do um, you know similar to a concussion where they have torque injury. And so this animal model, the pig animal model, could actually be our window into a more complex brain. Still not as complex as a human, but at least more complex. And they live longer than I believe it's two years for a mouse. We don't really study aged mice, so I don't know the exact <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and, and that's also another interesting point because most people are studying young adult mice, two to three months old. Pediatric concussions are very different than adult concussions in oh, humans. Oh, wow, okay, yeah. So even some of the biomarkers, there are some biomarkers for concussion, and even in animals, pediatric is different than adult. And the reason is you still have your brain developing. So you've got the developing brain and you have mechanisms by which you can repair the brain that might not be available in the adult. Mm. But at the same time, there's even a problem because often children who have concussions don't even know they have concussions and they don't communicate with the doctors because they don't know what's going on. Where mm. as an adult, you know when you don't feel well. I mean, you've lived X amount of years, you know you don't feel well, you know you hit your head, you know you're dizzy, where a child sometimes can't express that. So that's even another additional, I mean, we could talk for hours about the additional <laughs> complexities, but that's another complexity and humans Right, live a lot longer than even the pig, and their transition between childhood to adulthood is a lot longer. Mm. And where, you know, where in that transition period would you now see changes to how the brain repairs itself? That's right. a big question. So, is it uh, very simplistically, Barney? I, I don't know if I'm thinking about this correctly. So, the the pediatric concussion and the adult concussion. Is it because there's more space in the child's brain that you get less severe effects? So I think it's more complicated. I think okay. it's, it's, I mean, a developing child, they're still, their neurons are developing. So there's a time during development, children over, so as you're developing, you have too many synapses, okay? And what happens is some of those synapses get pruned. When they yeah. don't get pruned properly, that's how you end up with cognitive dysfunction like you see in, for example, um, autism, right? So children are usually diagnosed with autism pretty young because there's not enough pruning going on. And then there's a maintenance phase. And so the maintenance phase usually happens in adulthood. So there's still some pruning, there's some maintenance that's going on during um, the time that you have adolescence. And then during adults, you have maintenance. And when that maintenance fails, you get Alzheimer's disease, diseases such as those, because you have too few synapses. So 
there are multiple issues because you've got changes to your synapses, changes to your neurons. You also have hormones that kick in, right? You have um, puberty that sets in. And so you have changes and hormones play very important roles in the way they shape the brain. Mm. So you can see that now layer upon layer, it's becoming even more complex. And it's not just the space in the brain, which could play a role, but so many different layers. So this is another reason why often, um, you know, males have been studied, especially for TBI, because males are the most likely to get a TBI, but females actually respond to TBI differently. So there's a huge conflict in the literature mm. over who, how, how do males and females recover after a traumatic brain injury. Mm -hmm. And so some reports have said that, you know, females recover better than males and other reports have said males recover better than females. Some report that, you know, it's only in executive function. Other reports, you know, say, no, it's females who, who do better in executive function. And you can see that it's, it's really complicated. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that it's, we have to start in the animal model. And I think the pig model, again, I don't, I don't use it. So I don't know all of the complexities, but I think that that's a good kind of transition. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you're not as invasive because when a human has a traumatic brain injury, usually they don't, luckily they don't have a cracked skull. Right. Um, so the pig is going to be a better, a better model for non-invasive, but I think a lot of the molecular tools that we have. So looking at what proteins are involved is mm -hmm. much eas more easily done in the mouse, because there are a lot of genetic tools to overexpress proteins, knock them down, get rid of them, only get rid of them in the brain and nowhere else in the body. And so the mouse model is really, really important. Um, but again, getting back to your question, sorry, I, I got off topic again. But yeah, I think I think pediatric and where in pediatric makes it very difficult because you know a 11 year old is not the same as a 17 year old. So they're both pediatric TBI, but they're very, very different. Yeah. No, I was thinking, you know, when I take the morning coffee to my computer, I'm very careful. If I spill the coffee, it's gone. Yeah. Um, from a human design perspective, um, it's sort of an inelegant design in the sense that, you know, you carry this very prominent part of your body <laughs> on top of your body. And, you know, if it gets hit, you're in deep, deep trouble. Um, if I were to redesign the human body, I would have embedded the brain somewhere inside the gut somewhere. I mean, the mm -hmm. CPU should be protected a lot better than how it, how it's currently well, designed. Well, well, it is protected if you think about it. Your skull is pretty thick, right, and pretty yeah. hard. So yeah. I always think of it this way. You know, if you you know, got stabbed in the brain versus stabbed in the heart, if you get stabbed in the heart, you're probably going to die. If you get stabbed in the brain, it really depends what part of your brain is where your neurons die, what the function of that part is. So I'll give you an example. If you look at, do you know who Phineas Gage is? So Phineas Gage is kind of the most famous, right, uh, TBI patient ever. And he had a railroad tie that went right through his frontal cortex. He had lots of personality issues, you know, some memory loss. He did not make a full recovery, but he made a gradual recovery. Hmm. And so it's pretty amazing that this person who had a railroad tie through his brain actually didn't just die. I mean, granted, it depends on, it went through the frontal cortex. It didn't go through, you know, regions of the brain that are important for respiration and things like that. But that's pretty amazing. If you yeah. had a railroad tie right through your heart, you're not going to make it. <laughs> that, so would it be, is, that would be it, yeah. yeah. Yep. So, so there's still, I mean, 
nobody wants a railroad tie through their brain, but it still <laughs> shows you that there's some protection and there's protection not only with the skull, but there's some protection in the brain itself that it just doesn't just say, oh, I have a hole in myself. Okay, I'm going to stop functioning, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's an important point. Yeah, so, I mean, the other part of the body is also pretty badly designed in the sense that if, if you lose your heart, that's the end of it. I mean, you got to get the blood into your brain. So uh, you, you got to pump that's there <laughs> that, yep. that, that uh, does everything. Um, and so, so in conclusion, Barney, you know, so you've been doing this research for a long time. It seems really, really interesting and important. So five years from now, it, where do you want to go with this? I mean, what, what would be your dream that if you take all this information, and want to, you know, got to go to the future and want to accomplish something. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not thinking practically here. It could be a drug. It could be something else. But what, what is that you want to you want to do with this research five years from now? So the big picture is to understand how the brain heals itself and how to harness that, not just for a traumatic brain injury or, you know, wh whatever I happen to be studying at the time. I really would like to, for us to understand the basic mechanism, because once you understand how the brain heals itself and how to harness that, then you can apply that to many, many, many disorders. Right. And so it would affect many, many people, whether that's a drug whether there's a cognitive therapy. I mean, I don't study mm -hmm. cognitive therapies, but if we understand basic mechanism, maybe there's a cognitive therapy. Um, so for me, you know, I think that would touch the, the lives of most people if we can just figure out how to heal the brain. And, you know, that's a very, I think you were talking about pie in the sky. So that's the pie in the sky. You know, combine that with how can you diagnose really early? So if someone is, let's say, so part of the problem with Alzheimer's disease, I know throwing a lot of things together, but I think of them as yeah. kind of the same pot. Alzheimer's disease, you know, there's no diagnosis early on. Once you get dementia, you're, you either have dementia or Alzheimer's disease, post-mortem, they see these plaques, oh, you have Alzheimer's disease. But what if we had a way to diagnose very early through biomarkers, and then you can introduce the therapy based on our understanding of how the brain heals itself, whether it heals itself as an adolescent, you know, as a young adult, as an aged person, and then be able to apply that. I think to me, that would be amazing. So my goal, my lab's goal is to kind of contribute to that knowledge so that we can get to that point. Yeah, diagnostics, you know, I get this emails all the time. Is your computer running slowly? There might be a virus in there, you know, uh, type thing. Um, so I think diagnostics could improve quite dramatically. Um, I mean, we have a lot of data now, right? So we could pick up very subtle signs of Alzheimer's and all sorts of CNS-related issues. If we can pick it up early, do you think we can intervene and make it better? So that's the hope. And again, you know, I think, as you said, there are some subtle differences. Maybe it's easier to pick it up through some kind of cognitive test. So if you have a psychologist who's working, um, yeah. I think, you know, even if you look at children with autism, if there's early intervention and it's not a drug, right, it's usually some type of behavioral cognitive intervention, those children go on to be higher functioning. So there is a way to intervene early mm -hmm. so that the outcome is different. And so I, you know, I strongly believe as somebody, if there was a way for me to know what's going to happen in 20, 30 years from now, I might not want to know, but if I could prevent it, then I would want to know so I could prevent it. And it would be wonderful if there was a way to actually intervene and keep 
you know, keep people from developing full-blown Alzheimer's disease or full-blown Parkinson's disease or, you know, full-blown dementia, stop it early on. So, you know, it could even be diet. That might be even another thing that comes into play, which people are starting to look at the microbiome, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's that's uh, we should we sh you should come back and talk about that also at some point. Um, I mean, we have a lot of home health thing going on on the physical side, um, blood pressure, uh, diabetes related things. Um, but there's an equally important organ on top of your body that we don't really pick up much information on from a you know, sort of early diagnostic intervention perspective. So that's a big opportunity, I think, for home health type devices, right? Yeah, definitely. So there are a lot of people who are just starting to look at the microbiome in people with different disorders or their outcomes. And even in drug addiction. So we just hired a new faculty member who found that there are bacteria in your microbiome that could change how you get addicted to drugs. Mm -hmm. So I, I really think that's a wave of the future. And again, I, as someone who has celiac disease, diet is really important, right? Because I can't have gluten. So <laughs> I, I, and you know, another thing just for side reading is, um, so Terry Walls, I've read a lot of her, her stuff in her blog. So she is a, a medical doctor who had multiple sclerosis or has multiple sclerosis, was wheelchair bound and changed her diet based mm -hmm. on some of her research. And she now is up and walking. She's motivational. She wow. gives talks. So the microbiome and diet is really important. And if Terry Walls did that, Dr. Walls did that, you can imagine for MS, I'm sure that there's a way to figure that out for other disorders. So yeah, it's a damn bacteria at the end of the day, Bonnie, you know, yep. <laughs> they, they control you. <laughs> <laughs> We're slaves to bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, this is a great body. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you very much. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.